Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. The West presentation of the Ukraine conflict has always been muddled and confusing. Remember the phrase, as long as it takes? That is not a strategic goal. Now we're presented with, as long as it takes, pertains to the amount of conflict. It doesn't pertain to the amount of assistance. Do you understand what that means? Cross-talking, changing narratives. I'm joined by my guest, Karen Kwiatkowski, in Mount Jackson. She's a retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, having served both NSA and the Office of Secretary of Defense. In Washington, we have Andrei Martyanov. He is a writer as well as a military and political analyst. And in Berlin, we have Kevork Almasyan. He is founder of Syriana Analysis. All right, crosstalk rules. In effect, that means you can jump anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. Andrei, let me go to you. I mean, I already mentioned it in the introduction. So tell me, I mean, I know English isn't your first language here, but maybe you have special powers that I don't. As long as it takes pertains to the amount of conflict, it doesn't pertain to the amount of assistance. Is that, does that make any sense to you? As a native speaker of English, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Go ahead, Andrei. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense in, from any point of view, from uh, strategic, operational, or from logistical, for that matter. So it's basically a political statement designed for the internal consumption, consumption uh, in NATO and in the United States. And yes, it has no descriptive powers whatsoever. And we know how usually it goes uh, with the powers that be. And especially when you look at Afghanistan as the latest example. So, yeah, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, Karen, if I got to you, Mount Jackson, it, it, it's very interesting to me. We, we went from as long as it takes um, on nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Ukraine becomes completely dependent economically and militarily on the United States. But Ukraine has to decide its own terms and conditions to sit down with negotiation. I mean, you could go at this at any kind of trajectory you want, and it all is very, very confusing. Now, reality on the ground has made it that way, but their, their policy adjustments don't keep up with reality. That is the problem. And the public is picking up on it as well. Karen. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, the amount of information in, in, around the world available about what's really happening in Ukraine and also why why these things are happening, it's getting out there. And they can't even keep it away from uh, the limited interest uh, in, limitedly interested Americans who aren't really that interested, except that we have, you know, a, a terrible budget deficit and Americans are suffering economically and they see this money flowing into Ukraine. So they're, they're starting to ask. And that information now is widely available to people that are interested. They're having a very difficult time controlling the narrative here. It's a controlling the narrative. Kavarkin, let me go to you in Berlin. I mean, we had the revelation from Seymour Hirsch about the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. What has been the reaction of the German political elite in the media? Because apparently, I didn't know this, Cy Hirsch is this crazy old man. That's all he is. I thought he was one of the greatest living journalists of our time. What's the German response? Uh, the German official response is that Seymour Hirsch is a blogger. He's not a journalist. He's <laughs> and he's not an investigative journalist. He's a blogger sitting behind his laptop and just writing some illusions well, from his but, but mind. Isn't this Joseph, is the official response. Isn't Joseph Burrell just a blogger as well? 
I mean, we're all bloggers in their in their eyes, and uh, anything uh, outside of the official narrative here in Germany is uh, bashed, is smeared, and is been downgraded. And the media has a very strong influence over the public opinion in Germany, and they're able to project this hegemony, intellectual hegemony over the people, right? The only, in my opinion, two political parties in Germany that spoke about the Simon Hirsch article is the left-wing party, the Linke, and the AFD, the right-wing party. The rest, the four other political parties, and especially the three political parties who formed the coalition, they ridiculed the article of Simmer Hirsch because there is a war of narratives, right? This is also information warfare. So at the beginning, few first few weeks, two months, three months, probably one year, they can manipulate the people. But after one year, it's very difficult for the real information not to be surfaced uh, and for the people to be educated about it. And now you can see even Germans, they're speaking very quietly with each other because they're afraid to speak publicly and loud uh, in their surrounding about these cases and whether or not Germany should continue in its policy toward Ukraine and to be embedded with the United States in this regard. So at the beginning, in my opinion, the vast majority were in supportive of Ukraine, but the support is now diminishing because the people can carry also the burden economically on their shoulder, right? Exactly, and uh, against the, their own self-interest here. You know, Andre, the biggest problem in all of this, and you and I have talked about this before, is the framing of this as good versus evil. I mean, when you have that kind of framing, it can make you feel good, particularly if it doesn't impact you, okay? Just virtue signaling. But as Kavok just told us here, now the impact is beginning to felt. You know, the virtue signaling kind of fades away here. And when you do it, when you frame it as good versus evil, context doesn't matter, and geopolitical Political realities don't matter, and that's why this narrative is fumbling. It's been it's been fumbling from the very from the get go. Go ahead, Andre. Uh, in the last week or two, uh, we have a dramatic change in the mood, in narrative across the mainstream media in the United States, for example, and uh, you can also notice the uh, peak this up from French press, for example. And it, there was a dramatic change. Now we have Wall Street Journal, New York Times admitting that, yeah, Russians, despite the fact losing of one million troops a day, they still, you know, are on offensive, they're gaining ground, they're taking the towns and villages. And it, it was like the switch was flipped. And it has a very rational uh, explanation to it. And uh, you can lie only for so long before the reality begins to set in, especially in the modern world when there is still there are still many alternative sources of information. Yeah. And people who have uh, even a, a very rudimentary interest in geopolitics inevitably begin to, uh, you know, roll into those uh, bloggers, quote-unquote, like Cy Hirsch, then they begin to ask questions, let alone about professionals who uh, can point out immediately um, hysteria and the mood of desperation really at the top in the beltway. And I spoke about it, and yesterday I wrote again the article, you have to take a look at the latest issue of the so-called uh, intellectual magazine such as The Foreign Affairs, which is the rag of the neoliberal neocon elite. Yeah. And you can uh, literally go article by article there, and you will see yourself yeah. that how desperate they are. 
and well, the distortion. Andre, the, the point is here, you're, you're absolutely right. Let me go to Karen right now. I mean, from the get-go, this has been an elite project, okay? That's what it's all about. And I'm glad that Andre brought up foreign affairs. This has nothing to do with Ukraine. It ha it's about American hegemony. It's about taking Russia out first to focus their attention on China. That's always what it's always been. And, oh, by the way, make sure Germany and Russia don't have any kind of economic relationship, because that, that's what made Ger Germany prosperous. And it would make Germany think twice about how it feels about Ukraine and the United States here. This is only an elite project. It has been from that way since the start. Karen, go ahead. That's, that's absolutely true. And, and if you can see it that way, we can understand more about about how things have unfolded. But, you know, it occurs to me that, um, you know, Zelensky, a former comedian, and he's been very public with all of his, you know, he is Ukraine. For two Americans who know nothing about Ukraine, Zelensky is all that we know. And increasingly, he is becoming more of, of a comedian. And I think Americans are not really warming to him um, as much as he might think, and certainly not as much as Congress is. I know the Democratic Congress in particular, you know, he received a, you know, he addressed the Congress, uh, you know, not too long ago. And they were standing well, ovation. And, and, and the fact, Ukrainian flag, have you ever seen a foreign flag in the well of the Congress? <laughs> no. Keep going, no, Karen. Keep no, going. It's, yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy, but I think the Americans who see this, and of course, you know, we're we're uh, very short attention span. Americans flip channels, we stream our news or whatever. We don't even watch news. But when we see Zelensky, he is not someone who inspires Americans. I have no idea if he inspires Ukrainians, but he does not inspire Americans. And the things that he gets publicity for here often is that his lack of. Uh, uh, respect his, you know, he he dresses uh, as if he well, can do whatever he wants. Karen, he he's, as a, he's a panhandler. That's what he is. Gimme, yeah, gimme, gimme. He's he's an ungrateful panhandler. That's the worst kind. Um, and also, there's suggestions of that he's a drug user. He he may not be, but he certainly appears to Americans, well, and we know our cocaine. Okay, so. okay, Karen, I don't want to get in that. I don't want to go down that path. Let me just say to you and our audience, there was a lot of lot known about Zelensky in Ukraine and in Russia before he got the headline. So I'll leave it at that, okay? Okay, okay. Kavok, let me go Peter, to you. Peter, I would like to jump in. I go just ahead, want jump to say in, please do. Go ahead. The, the style of addressing uh, from the Ukrainian side to the Western world is very disrespectful. For example, Zelensky demands, Ukraine demands. The former ambassador of Ukraine in Germany, who is a worshiper of Bandera, and he was uh, yep. uh, polishing Bandera in the, in the German media, he demands the German side to send submarines now. To Ukraine. He demands Germany to send F-16 to Ukraine. They're not even addressing their uh, so-called allies in a respectful way. Therefore, I think even among the popular base here in Germany, the people are questioning whether they should really uh, deliver this type of uh, weapons uh, to Ukraine, and especially that the information is surfacing now through the social media platforms that show clearly the uh, neo-Nazi scene in Ukraine, right? So imagine there are photographers for the AFP, for the Reuters and the rest, they are really suffering to publish a photo where there is no swastika or there is neo-Nazi logos in the photos. They yeah. are doing, uh, really, they have a lots of work in their hands 
to hide these photos. And despite that, today the AFP posted a, vi posted a, a video in which we can see in one of the screenshots, one of the uh, officers is wearing an ISIS flag on yeah. his uh, <laughs> right shoulder, I'm, right? <laughs> it's crazy. I, Kvark, I, I, I pull my, what little hair I have out when I try to explain this to people. They just say it's propaganda. It's not true. That's what we're facing here. Folks, I'm going to jump in here. We're going to go to a short break. And after that short break, we'll continue our discussion on changing narratives. Stay with RT. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter LaBelle. To remind you, we're discussing changing narratives. Let's go back to, to Andre in Washington State. Andre, you probably know as well as you probably feel the same way I do um, in watching uh, what's been going on in Ukraine. Not since the beginning of last year, but all the way back to 2014. And you know what I'm getting at here. What I find really frustrating is the lack of context. There's so little context. If I, I say to uh, uh, when I'm questioned, you know, um, uh, Peter, why are you so passionate about this? And I always say because. This was inevitable, considering the, the West ignored the, the, the antecedents of how we got here, the Minsk Accords, this whole problem, um, the, the, the whole the entire push to put um, Ukraine into NATO and all of this. And you, you, say, uh, you show them, well, this is what CIA Director William Burns had to say. I can go, I can go on for hours and hours, and they just, their eyes just glass over, because they've never given the context of this. The, remember, unprovoked, unprovoked, unprovoked. This was the most provoked war in modern history, Andre. Yeah, the contextualization of the whole affair is the main method, actually, of propaganda and shaping narrative. And we need to understand that uh, they, the only thing they are good at, and I wouldn't say they're necessarily that good at it either, but the only thing they can do, actually, in any practical terms, is the PR and right. setting up uh, the narrative. Basically, when you look at the modern American or Western politics, it is primarily a narrative uh, mongering. It is very little practical things which are applicable to situation. And when you look at the even issue of supplying Ukraine with uh, arms and money, you can see yourself how the fallacy of this all. People themselves who who are the narrative mongers and decision makers, especially within the Beltway. They have no clue what they are dealing with. They have no clue what they are doing because they don't have evidently some kind of, I don't know, organ, physical and intellectual, how to learn and how to properly handle information. And it, what comes down to in the end, they have the plan A, they don't have plan B, C, D, and yeah. so on. Yeah. And the only yeah. thing they know is to how to handle narrative. For all intents and purposes, when you look at this, even American generals who dominate mainstream media, be it General Keen, General Petraeus, whatever, the, those think tank people who abuse sinecures there, they evidently don't even understand what modern warfare is. Well, Andre, and considering the generals you just mentioned, what 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 success can they personally 
point to. They can't. Yeah. Karen, Karen, I mean, I, what I thought, it's really painful, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm blacklisted, I can't go to Ukraine for obvious reasons. Um, but I, before, um, uh, before 2014, and a little bit after it, I went there many times, okay? And what really is painful for me is that, and I've mentioned this before on this program, is that the more the West helps Ukraine, the smaller it gets, geographically, and its population, not to speak of GDP and these other things here. I mean, it, it, it's a failed state. And who wants a failed state? You have all this arms flowing in there. No one really knows what's going, except for the people that are commandeering it. They know where it's going here. I mean, you've, you worked in the military, and I'm not asking you to speak for the military, but I mean, the, the level of cynicism here, it's, it's grotesque. Karen. Yeah, and I think actually within even the military today, not the spokespeople and not the retired generals like Petraeus, but in the military today, I think they're extremely aware of the stupidity and insanity of, of the U.S. policy here. Um, and the reason I say that is we know this is about Russia. This is about the U.S. versus Russia to contain, control, destroy Russia in some way, weaken Russia. We, we, have, the, we have the RAND documents to show that that's the objective. But the military understands well. The U.S. military today knows well that they can't take on Russia. And NATO understands. The NATO officers understand they cannot take on Russia. So this this is kind of a fantasy that they're all kind of, uh, you know, the emperor has no clothes and everyone is nodding, oh, but he's so beautiful, he's so powerful, you know. But I think they understand uh, the reality. But the problem for me is, or the concern that I have, and I think people should have, is that because this is an emotional, ideological kind of conflict on the American side and among NATO and Great Britain and, and even Ukraine, that winning a war may not be, well, winning a war is winning the war on their side. That's not possible. But damaging Russia, um, causing the amount of chaos that we don't even want to talk about, obviously, uh, chemical, nuclear, right. um, major destruction of human beings, of human life, that is still possible for the U.S., NATO, and Ukraine, less so Ukraine, probably the U.S. and NATO, to to conduct an operation like that, to cause gross damage, and then say, well, we're done, we're done, we, we've hurt and and this is this is a, a desperate move, like you said, the desperation that we see in the uh, Western media mouthpieces, foreign foreign affairs, for example, is supposed to be the intellectual guide. Yeah. Um, they're very desperate, and desperation in a in a dying empire, and we, the United States, are that dying empire. Th that's not a good thing. It's dangerous, and um, so. You know, we kind of have to keep our fingers crossed a little bit. Yeah. It doesn't make sense yeah, militarily, the, 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 the problem but emotionally. Is, the, the problem is here is that, in, and I've talked about this you know, for almost a solid year, every single program is on this topic. There's no learning curve here, and that's what we're all terrified of, okay? Bec and because it's been, become so emotional. Kvark, in, in, in Berlin, I want to ask you a very simple question, and I'm not saying you represent the German people, but what is Germany getting out of this, okay? I mean, your industrial, is, your industrial base is being severely damaged, okay? The, the, the wonderful success of post-war Germany was its prosperity, okay? That is being challenged right now. And, it's, and, and all the talk about Ukrainian sovereignty, what has the, the U.S. done to German sovereignty? Go ahead in Berlin. 
Peter, uh, the biggest loser of this war will be Ukraine, and the second biggest loser of this war will be Germany. And Germany will be hit severely, uh, but in economic, uh, in an economic sector, right? In an economic means. We all know that uh, NATO's goal in Germany is to deindustrialize this country. We all know that the goal is to cut this uh, economic integration between the Russian and the German side, because uh, good relations between Germany and Russia means that is strong Eurasia, and these uh, people of the region, they will never need NATO again. So the goal is to weaken Germany, to make it dependent on the United States security-wise and economic-wise. And unfortunately, there are politicians here in Germany, and they they follow the American dictates, right? The, the, the Germans didn't want to send the Leopard tanks, but you know how much pressure there was on the G German uh, government, on Olaf Scholz himself. I'm not saying, I'm not giving him, uh, uh, like, a justification, but there was a huge pressure from the media, from the political scene, and from the elites here in Germany on Olaf Scholz to send this Leopard uh, tank. And I suspect that in a few years, Germany will be weakened into extent that they will depend only on their agricultural se uh, sector, and they will import the gas from the United States three times higher the, the official price when they when they used to buy from uh, Russia, and therefore the industry will demise, yeah, and but the investors will run away from, from Germany, right? you, you know history as well as I do. I some of our viewers may know that, you know, at, towards the end of the Second World War, the, the, there was the Morgenthau plan to deindustrialize Germany. Who would have thought they were going to implement it in 2023? It's amazing, okay? Andre, how does NATO acquit itself in this conflict right now? I think it, it, it's, its very existence is in play right now, because it was never designed to fight um, uh, a pure conventional conflict. They, they didn't have a plan B, as you pointed out here. Um, what's its worth? I mean, it, it was in, when I was growing up, it was a supper club, okay? You have to join, you're never going to have to fight, you're going to have the American umbrella. And this is the, the biggest gross miscalculation here, is because Russia said, you know, um, we will find uh, NATO uh, expansion intolerable, and we will react. And they did. Andre, future of NATO. Uh, then we have to go back to 2021, December, and so-called Russian ultimatum, which was delivered by Mr. Lavrov. And we all remember one of the key points of this ultimatum, while well, it was basically a list of demands to roll back NATO to the borders of 1997. I will quote my friend, the colonel of the Central Apparatus of Russian Defense Ministry, Vladimir Trukhan, who stated that <laughs> we don't even sweat about European part of NATO. So NATO, obviously, it's, um, I, I wouldn't call it the paper tiger, but largely it is true. It will not be able to conduct a large combined arms operation designed to defeat the peer. And Russia obviously is a peer. In fact, sometimes in some fields it's above the peer level. And as Karen nailed it correctly, there is a desperation there. And they understand that the very existence of NATO, which for the last 30 years, as they wanted to say, was in the search of a mission, and they couldn't find good enough enemy, they have the enemy now. But the problem with the fact that they say this raison d'etre, so to speak, for existence, uh, they cannot find this enemy. And this enemy doesn't uh, uh, express desire to attack Europe and capture it and do something bad about it. And 
as correctly have been stated already, the very existence of NATO is at stake here. And we can see already how both European Union is beginning to uh, well, show serious cracks, and NATO will follow. So well, it's very interesting. Let, let me give the, la the last 50 seconds to Karen. Karen, I have a prediction here. Uh, Russia will prevail on the battlefield. It will dictate its terms. But you know what? Western elites and their pliant media will say, well, they didn't make it to the English Channel. We won. Okay. That's what they're going to yes. do. That's what they're going to do. Look, 40 seconds. Go ahead. Well, I think I think that given uh, we have an election, a presidential election cycle uh, starting in 2024, we have elections in 2024. Biden says he wants to run again. That means the Biden team, Blinken, all these neocons, um, they need a victory. So they will create one and they will call it one. And I think your your proposal there is fine. They didn't make it to the English Channel, so we won. Um, I, I, this whole thing is about narrative management, and I think that they are frustrated in D.C. right now because they are trying to figure out how to make it work, how to say what they think needs to be said. The problem is we sacrificed all the people, the people, the human beings in Ukraine, yep. um, the, the, the German economy, um, the reputation of NATO, Never will be. I, mean, uh, and I, would, I would even bad. say the reputation of the West in the eyes of the global majority, the global South. That's Absolutely. one of the biggest. Absolutely. That's all the time we have. Fascinating discussion. I want to thank my guests in Berlin, Mount Jackson, and in Washington State. And thanks to our viewers for watching us here at RT. See you next time. And remember, crosstalk rules.